Uh, Would you remain standing now out of respect for God's word as I read for you our sermon text, Amos chapter 9, verses 1 through 10. This is the inspired word of God. I saw the Lord standing beside the altar, and he said, Strike the capitals until the thresholds shake, and shatter them on the heads of all the people, and those who are left of them I will kill with the sword. Not one of them shall flee away, not one of them shall escape. If they dig into Sheol, from there shall my hand take them. If they climb up to heaven, from there I will bring them down. If they hide themselves on the top of Carmel, from there I will search them out and take them. And if they hide from my sight at the bottom of the sea, there I will command the serpent, and it shall bite them. And if they go into captivity before their enemies, there I will command the sword, and it shall kill them, and I will fix my eyes upon them for evil and not for good. The Lord God of hosts, he who touches the earth and it melts, and all who dwell in it mourn, and all of it rises like the Nile and it sinks again like the Nile of Egypt, who builds his upper chambers in the heavens and founds his vault upon the earth, who calls for the waters of the sea and pours them out upon the surface of the earth. The Lord is his name. Are you not like the Cushites to me, O people of Israel, declares the Lord. Did I not bring up Israel from the land of Egypt and the Philistines from Kaphtor and the Syrians, Syrians from Kerr? Behold, the eyes of the Lord God are upon the sinful kingdom, and I will destroy it from the surface of the ground, except that I will not utterly destroy the house of Jacob, declares the Lord. For behold, I will command and shake the house of Israel among all the nations as one shakes with a sieve, but no pebble shall fall to the earth. All the sinners of my people shall die by the sword, who say disaster shall not overtake or meet us. Thus ends the reading of God's holy and inspired word. Our only infallible rule for faith and practice. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. You may be seated. Would you pray with me once more? Our Lord God, we, we thank you for your word, even when it is a hard word, for you have given it to us, that we might know you better, that we might love you more, that we might proclaim your glory to ourselves and to the world around us. And so we pray that you would show us that glory today. Show us yourself. Reveal your glory to us. We ask you like Moses did in days of old. Help us to see you and be transformed. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we've reached the final chapter of Amos. Right? This We've got one sermon left after this week, uh, so, so we're finally here. We're getting to the end of this book. It, it's a hard passage to hear today, which I'm sure you're kind of used to. The passages that we've read in these weeks leading up to this have been hard passages. I had one person tell me just the other day, frankly, Pete, I'll be glad when we're done with Amos, right? And, and, and I understand that. It is a hard book. Next week will be a little bit more pleasant, but, but these first eight and a half chapters ha- have been kind of a slog. It's just, it's just like you're in the midst of a boxing match, and, and God is just punching you and punching you and punching you, and, and nobody likes that. 
None of us like that. I, it, there, there, it can be easy to feel like, oh, there's, there's nothing good out of this. I, I was talking to Erin the other day, and she mentioned to me the, the one thing she was thankful for in this, and I thought this was really wise. She said, it, it makes me really thankful for Jesus, right? Because we see in this passage what we deserve. We see in this whole chapter, or this whole book, what we deserve. We deserve the unmitigated judgment of God, his wrath poured out against us, and Jesus absorbed that for us. And so we don't. And there, there is good news in that for sure. But today, I want to look at this passage that we're looking at, and it's not a very upbeat passage. I will admit that. One other pastor began his sermon for this passage with these words. We continue as before in Amos with the promise of God's wrath against Israel. The particular theme of these verses, the conclusion of the main body of the prophecy, is that no one can escape his wrath. It makes an appropriate final word if the last hope of Israel were that even if God should unleash his vengeance against his people, many of them would escape it. Amos puts paid to that hope as well. No one will escape. God intends to punish his people for their unfaithfulness and what God intends to do, he does, and no man can shorten his hand. Well, isn't that cheerful, right? I mean, boy, whew. Well, I'm guessing that if, if you came here to, to, well, I'm hoping that if you came here, you didn't come here to hear a, uh, a health, wealth, prosperity, I am great type of message, right? Because that's not the kind of message you ever hear from, from this pulpit, uh, and, and it's certainly not the kind of message you'll hear from this pulpit as we're looking at this passage today. But that being said, we learn a lot about God in this passage, and it's a very valuable passage to us for that reason. We see in this passage, as I put in your sermon notes, which you can find in your bulletin, uh, the following things about God. God's holy justice, God's omnipresent omniscience, God's omnipotent power, and God's sovereign rule. These are all wonderful things about God. We're going to look at them and how this passage informs us about these things today. First off, God's holy justice. Right, remember the visions that God has given Amos in chapters 7 and 8 leading up to this. It's important to have context. He gave him a vision of locusts and of fire and of a plumb line and of a basket of ripe fruit. These were all intended to be kind of metaphorical images that were to point to certain truths about the people's sin and God's subsequent judgment. But God dispenses with metaphor here in the vision he gives him now. He simply gives a vision of himself. Amos says, I saw the Lord standing beside the altar. Likely the, the Bethel altar is what we think is, is what's happening here. That altar that we read about just a little bit ago when we looked at the Unison Scripture reading, right? We, we read of how Jeroboam had set up these altars as, as a place for the people to worship so that they wouldn't go. Not because it was what God had commanded, but but so that they wouldn't go to the 
southern kingdom so that they wouldn't go back to Jerusalem where God had commanded them to go. He set up these golden calves for them to worship and said that this was their God, that they should worship him. Remember, this is the, the context for this politically driven decision. He constructed these altars. He, he made up these feasts that he offered his own sacrifices upon these altars. Normally, he would be the one standing next to the altar, but this vision that God has given Amos is not of Jeroboam standing next to the altar, but rather it is the Lord God standing beside the altar. He says, strike the capitals until the thresholds shake and shatter them on the heads of all the people. Those who are left of them I will kill with the sword. Not one of them shall flee away. Not one of them shall escape. And you might say, why so severe, God? Why so severe? Well, well, because he is a jealous God. And, and we hear the word jealous, and, and our first reaction might be to say, well, you shouldn't be jealous about things. And, and normally that might be right, but there are circumstances that, that are appropriate for jealousy, right? Now, now, it's not just a matter in this case of, of somebody having something that God wants, right? Because he doesn't have it and he wants it. And, and so he's jealous over them. Rather, what it is, it's something that is rightly his, that ought to be his and ought not to be theirs, that belongs to him and he ought not to have to share with anyone. And yet it is another who has it. It's, for instance, let's imagine that, that there's a woman who, who sees her husband say hello to somebody, to another woman, right? Just says hello. And she becomes very jealous because he's said hello to this other woman. Well, you know, that, that might be kind of a bad example of, or an example of bad jealousy, right? You, if he's just saying hello, that's just being a, a neighborly person or whatever. But on the other hand, let's say that that man is actually having an affair with this woman. Now, now she has every right to be jealous in this situation. In fact, I would argue that she ought to be jealous in this situation because this man is not this woman's husband. He is her husband. She ought to be jealous there. And that is exactly the picture that is going on here, right? Because the people of God, he tells us he has taken us as his bride, right? He has taken us as his bride. We see here the people of God in the nation of Israel are the bride of God. His, he is the, the groom of the people of Israel. And yet they are chasing after other gods. They are joining themselves with another God. They are having a spiritual affair with another God, as it were. And he has every right to be jealous about that. But he has told them way back in Exodus 20, you remember the Ten Commandments. He says, you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven or above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Of course, of course, what did they do? They promptly fashioned a golden calf, right? They worshiped the golden calf in the wilderness. We remember that Jeroboam here has done it twice as well, right? He fashions two golden calves and sets them up in two places. And, and we see that he's utterly in sin in doing this. And as the people followed after that, they are utterly in sin as well. But, but God, in reacting to this, is not just having a temper tantrum, right? As the Westminster divines say that God is without passions. Now, that doesn't mean that he doesn't have any 
feelings or emotions, right? But what it means is he is not driven by them. He is not overcome by them in the way that we might be. I might get upset about something and it might cause me to do something that I wish I hadn't done, but that never happens with God. He is what the philosophers call the pure act, right? He, in his very essence, is what he does and does what he is, and he cannot be overcome by his emotions or by passions as such. And so we see that he is acting out of his holiness and out of his justice in this case, in that pure and righteous jealousy that undergirds it. He says in Exodus 34, you shall tear down the altars of the people who have set up these altars to foreign gods and, and cut down their ashram. He says, for you shall worship no other god, for the Lord whose name is jealous is a jealous God. But of course the people didn't do that. They didn't do that when they went into the land. They instead said, well, okay, let's just kind of, kind of have this God here and this God here. We can kind of coexist with them. We can syncretize them all together. And God was none too pleased. He says, if you won't do it, I will tear them down. I will act. I will do what ought to be done. Right? And as Joshua said to the people in Joshua 24, he said, you are not able to serve the Lord, for he is a holy God. He is a jealous God. He will not forgive your transgressions or your sins. Right? He's saying, if you will not worship him as you should, if you will not follow him as you should, then he's not going to forgive that. You need to realize he is a holy God. Right? It's what Paul tells us later. The wages of sin is death. It's something that we, that, that we know. We know that we deserve this. We know this deep down, even if we don't want to admit it to ourselves. There's something that, that just, just echoes God's word deep within our souls. His, his word in the garden, right? Do not eat of the forbidden fruit, for when you eat of it, surely you will die. That is, that is the truth that God gives us, and that is the reality that we live with. And so, just like Adam, we try to hide our sin from God. We try to hide it. Remember Adam, when he did partake of the sin, what is it that we, we read he did, but he, he hid himself in the garden. He hid himself from God because he, he didn't want God to see his sin. He didn't want that holy justice to fall about upon him. And, and we do this often. Think, think of the scandals that, that often hit. There's actually a report that's coming out today from a, a large denomination in America that will detail the, the sexual abuse that has taken place within that denomination. And, and that denomination is not uh, in and of itself the only one that is like that. It's, it's something that's rampant and it's terrible and it's horrible. And it's, it's, it's it's a shame to the church and a shame to the name of Christ Jesus that it's a thing. But it's the reality of people do these things in the dark and they think that, that, that I can do them in the dark and I can hide them from God and I can hide them from others. But your sin will ultimately find you out. And even if you can hide it from others, you will not hide it from God. We see that in the next point, God's omnipresent omniscience. Right, we use two big fancy Latin words here, big seminary words, omnipresent and omniscience. Right? And, and they're pretty easy if you think about omni, you just think that means all, right? That's the word that means all. And so, so all present, omnipresent is all present. It means God is everywhere. 
right? There's nowhere we can go that God is not. And then omniscience, if you look at that word, you see it says omniscience, right? And it means all-knowing. God, God knows all. So when we talk of his omnipresent omniscience, we're saying that, that he is everywhere and he knows everything. Right? So there's no way we can get away from him. There's no way we can avoid him seeing what we're doing. In Hebrews 4, we read, No creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Right? We could try to hide ourselves like Adam in the garden, but it is a futile effort. There is no way we can do it. I think back to when I was a, a young child, maybe three or four, I used to play hide-and-seek with my cousins in my grandparents' house, and I would hide, and they were all older than me, and they always found me first, and I couldn't figure out because I had found the very best hiding place in the house, and I hid there every time, and somehow they still found me. I couldn't figure it out. That's how we are when we try to hide from God. We are just as foolish. There is no way we can hide from him. He sees us wherever we go. Jeremiah 23 says, Can a man hide himself in secret places so that I cannot see him? Declares the Lord, do I not fill heaven and earth? Right? He fills heaven and earth. He is omnipresent. That's what our passage tells us today. If they dig into Sheol, that's the place of the dead, there shall my hand take them. If they climb up to heaven, from there I will bring them down. You see, he says, I'll go everywhere, right? From the, the lowest of lows to the highest of highs in the spiritual world. But it's not just the spiritual world, it's the physical world as well. If they hide themselves on the top of Carmel, that's a mountain. If they go to the mountaintop, from there I will search them out and take them. And if they hide themselves at the bottom of the sea, the lowest of lows, I'll, I'll send the serpent and he'll bite them. Right? He says there's nowhere in the spiritual world that you can go. There's nowhere in the physical world that you can go. And, and, and then if they say, well, well maybe I'll, I'll run away from God and I'll, I'll, I'll get captured into captivity by some, some other people and they'll take me off to some faraway country where they have their own gods and that way I can get away from this God. He says, no. If they go into captivity before their enemies, there I will command the sword. It shall kill them. I'll fix my eyes upon them for evil, not for good. Indeed, God uses even the enemies of his people, even the enemies of God, he uses for his purposes. We'll see that with Israel carried off by Assyria and the people of Judah carried off by Babylon. They, they, these are evil nations that God works through. And it's the same thing we see with Christ Jesus, right? What does Peter tell us in Acts 2 when he's preaching to, to the people about what they have done, what the, the men of Israel, he says, says about Jesus of Nazareth, this man that had been attested to you by God and by these, these mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through your midst, as you yourselves know, he said, this Jesus, and then follow these words that he says, delivered up, According to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Did you catch both of those? He says, says you crucified and killed him. That's on you. That was your doing. And yet, it was according to the purpose and foreknowledge of God. Right? God works through the hands of even sinful people to accomplish his purposes. He is at work even through sinful nations to accomplish his purposes. 
And God knows the secrets of our hearts. There's no hiding from him. In fact, he knows our hearts better than we do. He is omnipresent. He is omniscient. But he's not just omnipresent and omniscient. He is also omnipotent, to use another big fancy Latin word. Omnipotent, omnipotent. Right, potent means strong. So now he's, he's all-powerful. Omnipotent, God, all-powerful. We see it not just in what's said about him in verse 4, but also in what he's called in verse 5. He's called the Lord God. Right, and we see the, the capital letters for God in that passage there, which, which reminds us that what's being said here, this is Yahweh. Right, it's the Jehovah God, Yahweh the God who is the covenant God of the people of Israel, but not just a tribal deity. The God who created the heavens and the earth. The God who is the God who is. And we see here the Lord God of hosts. The Hebrew there is Lord Sabaoth, right? We've, we're familiar with that phrase, Lord Sabaoth. It's, it's from Martin Luther, uh, his famous hymn, right? Uh, a mighty fortress is our God. There's the the verse that says, did we in our own strength confide our striving would be losing? We're not the right man on our side, the man of God's own choosing. You ask who that may be, Christ Jesus, it is he, Lord Sabaoth, his name. From age to age the same, and he must win the battle. Right, what's this Lord Sabaoth? What, What exactly does that mean, Lord of hosts? Well, well, hosts can mean armies. Sometimes that's what, what it means. Sometimes it means heavenly bodies. Sometimes people kind of combine these two and, and have it mean armies of angels. It can mean any of those. And, and most of the commentators agree, actually, that, that the sense of this is that it encompasses all of those. Right? The idea is that, that he is the Lord over all of these. He is the Lord over, over armies. He is the Lord over the, the celestial bodies. He is the army over are the lord over angels he's the lord of all power and all glory it all belongs to him right it's what hebrews 1 says about jesus that that he holds all things together by the word of his power right and if you're the one who holds all things together then you are capable to pull all things apart and we see in verse 5 that god will do that very thing in judgment he who touches the earth and melts it. All who dwell in it mourn, and all of it rises like the Nile, and sinks again like the Nile of Egypt. And we're reminded of two things, at least I was, when I think of the Nile. I think, first off, he just mentioned the Nile last chapter, remember? He talked about the, the earth shaking, and the Nile as it, as it floods, and as it just throws the people about. The power of the Nile that, that it has in and of itself as it floods, it is a powerful thing. God is more powerful than that right if you've ever been swept away in floodwaters that that would be a scary thing if you've even seen it it would be a scary thing and God is saying I'm much more powerful than that what's the other thing we should think of when we think of the Nile of course it is Egypt it is where the people of God had been carried away into slavery it is where they were were stuck there was nothing they could do to extricate themselves from slavery from bondage in Egypt but God could and God did. His mighty hand was able to remove them out of slavery because he is more powerful than any army assembled. 
So we see these truths. We're reminded of these truths with his omnipotent power. He who builds his upper chambers in the heavens and founds his vault upon the earth, who calls for the waters of the sea and pours them out upon the surface of the earth. The Lord is his name. The Lord, Yahweh, the creator God. This is who we're talking about. He who created all out of nothing. And because he created all things, everything is his. Right? That's, that's how it works. He made it all, so it's all his. And he is sovereign over it all. He rules over it all. We speak to see his sovereign rule here. Remember what we said about Assyria and Babylon just a minute ago. He's sovereign over them. Even these foreign nations that don't recognize his deity. It doesn't matter what we recognize. Right? I don't have to recognize gravity. Right? If I step off a cliff, I'm still going to fall. Right? It's not like the cartoons with the, you know, the, the roadrunners or the, you know, the wily coyote. You know, he runs off the cliff and he stands there in the middle, mid, middle of the air. Right? He's, and he's just standing there. Right? And, and it's not until he realizes it, you know, oh my goodness, then he falls. Right? It, it, it's not like that. The real world's not like that. Whether we recognize gravity or not, we fall. And it's the same way with God and his sovereignty. We might not recognize his sovereignty. We might reject his sovereignty. We might reject his whole being. But that does not change who he is or what he does or how he rules. That does not change the fact that he is sovereign over all. For his purposes, he accomplishes what he wants to accomplish. Israel thought that, that he had chosen them because they were special, right? That, that, you know, if he chose us, we must be special. That must have been his reason for choosing us because we were smarter and, and, and stronger and more faithful and probably better looking. And uh, he chose us for all of these reasons. No. The only thing that made them special was the fact that God had chosen them. Right? It's not the, the purpose for his choosing them, but rather the result of his having chosen them. And he tells them in verse 7, are you not like the Cushites to me, O people of Israel? Right? Are you not like this foreign nation? You're, you're just like them. And he anticipates the question that they would have asked. He said, but God, did, didn't, you, didn't you bring us up out of Egypt? Didn't you make us different? And so he, he, he gets in front of that question right here. He says, did I not bring you up from Israel? From the land of Egypt, or bring up Israel from the land of Egypt. He says, and the Philistines from Kaphtor and Syri Syrians from Kerr. Right? He says, I brought up other nations from other places. I move them around as I want for my purposes. But aren't we your covenant people, God? Aren't, aren't we special? And this is the whole thrust of the book, really. Yes, they, they were the people he had chosen for his covenant people. But what he's saying to them here is, though I have chosen you to be precious to me, though I have chosen you to shower my love upon, though I have chosen you to, to give you all the benefits of the covenant, you have lived as if we are not in covenant together. Right? Though, though I have chosen you to be my bride, you have chosen to run off with other men. So he says to them, you're to live out a life of of love and of faithfulness, right? Of love for me, responding to my love by loving your neighbor. But you failed to do this. You have, you have not loved your neighbor 
you've not shown that kind of religion that is that is pure and undefiled before God, right? That that love of neighbor, that kindness, that generosity toward those who are are less powerful, those who are are less wealthy, those who are are less strong, those who are less capable, those who are more in need of assistance. You've, You've neglected them. You've neglected this mercy that you should have shown. And instead of showing this kind of pure religion, you have shown a counterfeit religion. And as Alistair Begg says, God is nauseated by religion that is offered on counterfeit altars. We see it right here. Behold, the eyes of the Lord God are upon the sinful kingdom. I will destroy it from the surface of the ground. Verse 9, for behold, I will command and shake the house of Israel among all the nations as one shakes with a sieve. No pebble shall fall to the earth, all the sinners of my people shall die by the sword, who say disaster shall not overtake or meet us. The holiness of God will not tolerate it. Well, if you looked at your notes, you know that the next part says, this all leads to some very good news. And that's kind of unexpected at this point, I think. Because it doesn't seem like very good news. But, but let's take a step back. Let's consider the points that we've looked at. We've looked at God's holy justice. It seems severe. It seems hard. But, but there is a goodness in God's holy justice, is there not? That, that he doesn't just act capriciously. Right? We know what we can expect from him. And beyond that, when somebody has wronged us, when somebody has sinned against us, we can be sure that that sin will be dealt with. Right? We, we don't have to seek vengeance on our own. We don't have to get even because God will get even with all sin. He will take care of it and we can leave it to him. God's omnipresent omniscience seems kind of, kind of overwhelming. I, I can't get away with anything, right? But at the same time, isn't it comforting to know that God sees you all the time? If you are in need in any way, he is aware. It, it, it won't happen that you'll have something come up while he's sleeping, right? And, and oh my goodness, if only I had been there, I could have helped you, but, but you know, I had to take a little nap. That never happens with God, right? He tells us that not even a, a hair will fall from our head without him knowing. He is aware of it all, right? Second Chronicles 16.9 famously tells us, for the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the earth. But do you know what the second part of that verse is? It's a little bit less famous, probably. We, we know this, the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the earth. But what follows right after that is the reason that they run to and fro. They run to and fro throughout the whole earth to give strong support to those whose heart is blameless toward him. What better support could we have? than that of the Lord, than that of the Lord who is he of omnipotent power, right? I mean, let's say we have a God who, who sees us always and is always ready to help us, and he's a 92-pound weakling who can't accomplish anything, right? Well, we appreciate the thought. It's nice that you want to be there to help us, Lord, but if you can't accomplish anything, it really does us no good. But that's not our God. He is the God of omnipotent power. 
He is there able to conquer anything that comes against him. Nothing shall overpower him. And all things occur according to his plan for his purposes. He is the God of sovereign rule. He rules over all. It doesn't always seem like that. Right? There are times that it seems that things are spinning out of control. Right? This is the way it is in our world often. Right? When we get sick, when we lose a loved one, when we, when we have financial difficulties, when we lose our job, when, when, when we have a, a, a marriage breaking up, when we have all kinds of problems, it seems it is all out of control, but God is still sovereign. He is sovereign even in the worst of situations. Right? We are reminded of that in Hebrews 2, and how he puts everything in subjection to Christ and left nothing outside of his control. Then he says this, at present we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. Right? We don't see it. Doesn't mean it's not the case, but we don't see it. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels. Namely, Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by grace we, he might taste death for everyone. As he hung on that cross and died, it seemed everything had spun out of control. It seemed like he had lost. But God was at work. He was in control. He was working out his purposes that you and I might receive forgiveness for our sins through the penalty that Jesus paid on the cross for us. Without his blood being poured, we would have to pour out our blood, right? The wages of sin is death, but if he has given his death for us, we no longer need to die for our sins. And so Hebrews goes on to say it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. This is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers. What a wonderful, wonderful. I came across that verse this week again. I was just so encouraged by it. He is not ashamed to call them brothers. Right? The word there would apply to brothers and sisters the same. He's not ashamed to call us family. We who sinned against him, we who sent him to the cross, we who caused his death, he's not ashamed of us. He will bring us in anyway. If indeed we trust in him, if indeed we trust in him and forsake our sin, if we turn away from our sin and follow him and walk in the righteousness that he has granted us, he is not ashamed of us anymore. We are sinners, but we need this new identity. We are the ones being sanctified. He is the one who sanctifies us. And in that identity as his siblings, he has made us holy. He has made us family. One final note you might have noticed. When I was going through the passages, I skipped part of verse 8. God said, I will destroy it, namely Israel, from the surface of the ground, except that I will not utterly destroy the house of Jacob, declares the Lord. You see, there is always a remnant. There is always a remnant of God's people that he has held. He has said that he will build his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. So there is always going to be a remnant tucked away, hidden, protected by God that he will continue to build and he will see that work unto completion. No matter how bad things get, 
we can still follow God. We can still trust in his power. We can still realize his presence. We can still rejoice that he knows all things and that he is ruling over all things. We can rejoice that he is just and that he has justified us in Christ Jesus our Lord. So even if things seem to be crumbling around you, remember we can rest in the firm foundation of his gospel promises. Would you pray with me? Lord, help us to live in that sure knowledge, that sure knowledge of Christ Jesus, our Savior, the foundation that he, he has laid for us in and of himself, for he is that chief cornerstone upon which the church has been built. May we rest in him, not in our own works, not in our own plans, not in our own devices, but rather in him. So that then help us to know him better and to love him more. For we pray it in his name. Amen. If you're able now, I invite you to rise with me as we sing hymn 243. It's both in your bulletin and in your hymnal. How firm a foundation.